Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Coming up on today's show, they're now into the final storm of three storms in BC, and they're watching and waiting nervously. A working group has been put together in our province to try and deal with a shocking rise in the number of pharmacy robberies in our province. And we'll chat with Ari Goldkind, a criminal defense lawyer and legal commentator on the trial of Glenn Maxwell. Let's get an update on what's happening in British Columbia because we said that's a that, that's a far more pressing issue and we know the situation there is bad and there's the potential for it to get worse, but it might not. So let's get the details from Emily Lazatin, who is a global news reporter that's been covering this. Emily, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Hi, good morning. How are you? Good, good. Uh, not bad at all. How are you? How are things so far in BC? Uh, well, it is a wet one. We are in our third atmospheric river. So I'm right now situated in Abbotsford. It's, it's a good at least uh, 60 kilometers away uh, from uh, Metro Vancouver. So this is one of the hardest hit areas. Um, uh, and since I'm here, we're right at the Canada-U.S. border. Okay. And so the issue here is, you know, two weeks ago, the mass disaster into Abbotsford was water flowing from the Nooksack River into the prairie, into low-lying areas, and it just caused widespread damage. We're talking, you know, well over 20,000 acres of farmland underwater. We're talking animals who've died, poultry, cattle. Um, and today, we're or the last couple of days, we've been situated in, a, a, again, a village. It's called Huntington Village. There's it's a small neighborhood right on the Canada-U.S. border. There have been military crews here the last couple of days sandbagging the area, um, pr- trying to protect these homes. And so far, so good right now. There is minor flooding, literally. Just If you step over these sandbags, there's a foot and a half of water. Uh, but the way it's been, it's been a slow trickle that it hasn't made its way to the homes here where where I'm standing. And that okay. is good news so far. Great news so far. Um, now, when we're talking about this, uh, and I know hearing from the mayor of Abbotsford saying, you know what, we're watching, we yes. feel like we're in better shape, but we don't know until we know. But so far, it sounds like there's a little more optimism than there was last time around. Yeah, and, and that is because, you know, he has assured the community, he's assured uh, the residents here that the city, along with, you know, the federal help, these military crews, that they have done everything they can. And that means rebuilding the dikes that were breached, especially the main dike. There was a 100-meter gap there. They built it a little higher as well. But also, there's no way to tell if there's major damage underneath. Uh, they've, again, sandbagged uh, communities that were hit hard by the floods the first time around. So, again, that's a, those are, again, smaller villages, communities within Abbotsford. And so, so he's reassured the public that, you know, the Barrowtown pump station is working at full capacity. Yesterday, uh, the floodgates, were open, which means water is draining from the CMS back into the freezer again. They had to close it for about a day because of the water levels. So everything is looking 
on the up here. But again, it, it is raining. It is coming down hard. We are also now worried about snow melt. Um, but very optimistic. The city can hold its own in the next couple of days. Uh, but so the province has issued. They've extended our state of emergency for another two weeks here. What about the rest of the province? I was reading some stuff yeah. this morning that Hope is seeing some major problems. What else is going on in B.C.? So you want to, you, like, you know, Vancouver Island, there's parts there that are under flood watch. We want to talk about the southern interior into Princeton, Merritt. Military crews made their way over there to, because uh, rivers are on flood watch in local areas. So, again, you have military personnel. They are sandbagging homes. They are uh, reinforcing dikes. And, you know, we talk about Merritt. This is a city this is a city of 7000 that was literally fully submerged underwater 2 weeks ago and just uh just in the last week were some of their residents able to go home some able to to go on a day pass and when i say day pass it's literally for 6 hours but they had to leave again um and so it's been a little bit of back and forth because of this flood watch it's been okay you can come back oh we've got to take that away again so people are living on edge, um, and uh, people just want to go back home. They want to see the damage, survey their land. Uh, it's been hard, uh, and uh, now with the news, we've uh, had to, we're going to have to gas ration again for another two weeks. So that was already in place for two weeks. Uh, but given our highways, um, some are reopening. And some are, again, closed off. Again, that all has to do with safety and, and prioritizing routes that need to be available to move goods and have to be available for emergency crews. So, again, like Highway 1, for instance, where I am, where I am at, uh, I can't go for any further than what's called McCallum Road. So there's a cutoff between McCallum Road and, and Chilliwack. So you're essentially cutting off the rest of the province here uh, to the interior. So it's been a tough one. But our province is really asking us to wait it out. So there's non-essential travel in place, as well as gas rationing. And that means 30 litres of gas per fill-up at the moment for the next two weeks. Um, And this is the second of three or the third of three? Where are we in terms of this series of storms? Is this the end, the middle? Where are we at? We are at three of three. We are at three of three. Okay, so this is it. (laughs) The first one two weeks ago, that really brought... uh, Again, you, that that caused so much havoc. Much of the prairie was underwater here in Abbotsford. Again, Merritt, 7,000 people, the whole city submerged. Uh, in Princeton, uh, we had sewage uh, sewage plants that, you know, just went offline. So it was very unsanitary. People were stuck between mudslides. And, and we're ready for this nightmare to be over. Yeah, well, we'll see. Get through this, and hopefully things yeah. will be a little bit better. Emily, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate it. Bye. Talk to you. Thank you. That is Emily Lazatin, a reporter for Global BC who's been on the ground uh, covering what's going on in British Columbia for some time now. And as you know, it's been one storm after another. This is the third and final one, according to Emily. So get through this and hopefully things will be quite well. But as she said, uh, getting through it is going to be the challenge because it's another big one and it's expected to last most of the day and a lot of rain expecting to fall. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that situation and bring you any developments. Pharmacy robberies are a big deal in our province and getting worse, really. Um, I think, you know, this has always been a problem or at least has been for several years. But if you take a look at the trend, okay, now just this is from the Edmonton Police Service. 2019, eight pharmacy robberies. Not good. 2020, it goes up to 18. So far this year, 39. 
The trend is pretty clear. Now there's a number of groups that are working to try and come up with a plan to stem the tide here, and obviously it's important. So we're going to chat with Greg Eberhardt. Greg is the Register of the Alberta College of Pharmacy. Greg, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much, Shane. So I talked about the Edmonton numbers there and what we're seeing, and I imagine it's a similar trend right across the province, right? Well, it's, it's actually much worse than that in Calgary. If you look at the period between um, uh, September 2020 and August 2021, there were 89 robberies in Calgary, and those numbers continue to increase. 89? We've actually seen the, the um, incidence of robberies uh, shift a little bit between Edmonton and Calgary periodically, but that's certainly where most of them are occurring. Um, so when we take a look at what's going on here, who's, who's coming together to try and see if you can come up with a plan to address this? I know obviously um, you're involved, but who, who's joining you at the table? Sure, we're, we're happy to be engaged with the RCMP, the Edmonton Police Service and the Calgary Police Service. Uh, as well as the Alberta Pharmacists Association. And we all have an interest in trying to curb this trend in the interest of the safety of our communities and the safety of the pharmacy teams and their patients. Um, what are we seeing with these robberies? I mean, have not only the number uh, increased, but are they becoming more violent? Is there a concern there? Yes, there is an indication of increased violence. Uh, we've seen situations where pharmacists have been pistol whipped. We've seen individuals where, or situations where, uh, members of the public, patients of the pharmacists have been impacted and above and beyond any physical trauma is the emotional trauma that goes along with this. It's quite devastating to experience something like this and it's something that lingers in the minds of the individuals that have been impacted for a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. It would be just uh, horribly traumatic. So I-, I was reading in some of the um, uh, reporting on this that it looks like maybe there's I don't know if you want to call it organization, but certainly people who are doing this more than once and they're traveling and they're targeting different areas of the province. Have you seen that? Well, I think that perpetrators are organized and perpetrators do travel. They'll often travel to, you know, where the path of least resistance is. As I've indicated, we did see some trending where there was uh, high incidence of robberies in Calgary. Things then shifted a little bit more towards Edmonton and they've gone back and forth. We're now starting to see reports of robberies uh, in other parts of Alberta and in other provinces. So um, it's something that we need to be mindful of, not only provincially, but nationally. Now, is this driven almost entirely by opiates? Is that the target? Is that why this is happening? Opiates would be the primary target. Uh, And again, I believe that it's a symptom of the larger problem that we have across our communities with respect to uh, opiate use disorder and uh, the inappropriate use of these substances. Now, obviously, you're working on a plan, but I know you've come up with some recommendations for pharmacies that they can put in place right now. What can you tell us about that? We've provided recommendations to pharmacists and their teams uh, over the course of the past year, again, through the support of our policing agencies. Uh, many of these alternatives are um, uh, preventative in nature. We've also provided them uh, education about what to do in the event that they do experience an armed robberies. But our environmental scan indicates that the most success, successful uh, preventative measure is the implementation of time-release safes in pharmacies. These were implemented in British Columbia a number of years ago, and when implemented, along with supporting public relations and, and, and public education campaigns, uh, they've essentially been able to curb the number of armed robberies experienced there to zero. Wow. 
Okay. So these are pretty simple steps. You just, you know, and we, we see the sign when you walk in, right? You know, all narcotics are stored in a safe. We can't access it. Those kinds of things that can be done right away can make a big difference then. Well, very much so. Evidence indicates that individuals who might be prone to uh, having an interest in an armed robbery really want to enter the premises and exit as quickly as possible. And so if there is awareness that the pharmacist cannot access the safes and access the narcotics in a timely manner, uh, it is a a method of apprehension. Um, When you look at the the group that you've brought together that's now coming up with a plan to try and deal with this, um, what kind of things are you looking at? Are you seeing, is there other jurisdictions that you can point to where they've had success in, in, in dealing with this? Well, I want to emphasize that the single intervention that has been most successful is the time-release safes. Obviously, there's other recommendations that have been provided, and we encourage all pharmacies to consider those, Uh, one being as simple as uh, minimizing the amount of cash and drugs that are kept on site, Mm -hmm. Uh, providing pharmacy staff with panic alarms, uh, possibly installing physical security measures such as remote locking doors, We don't prefer that last recommendation because as pharmacists, uh, we are members of the health team and pharmacy teams, as demonstrated through COVID, are amongst the most accessible of health professionals. So we want to be careful that as we uh, introduce recommendations that we're not taking steps that are not going to inadvertently uh, jeopardize the public's access to the pharmacy services that they require. You're so right. I mean, that's the fine line that you need to walk. It needs to be secure, but at the same time, it still needs to be accessible because, I mean, so many people rely on their pharmacists and have a personal relationship with them. Well, very much so. And I think that uh, COVID has really demonstrated that. Uh, I think they've played, all pharmacists have provided a, uh, a commendable service. They've, they've maintained their availability and accessibility uh, many of them putting their professional responsibilities before their personal interests to make sure that their communities can be served. Excellent. Um, Greg, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us, and best of luck with uh, whatever you come up with here. Obviously, it's very much needed. Shane, thank you for reaching out on this most important story. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. That is Greg Eberhardt, who is the registrar of the Alberta College of Pharmacy. And, you know, I mean, there's always been pharmacy robberies, but some of the numbers that we're seeing in the province really were shocking to me. Uh, 89 uh, in Calgary this year. That's that's frightening, you know. Uh, it's it, Obviously, they're, they've always been a target, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse as we go along here. So, you know, like he said, some of the things that pharmacies are doing, and you've probably seen it. You know, when you go to the drugstore with the time-delayed safes that they store narcotics in. And, I mean, do we want to get to the point where we have to have pharmacy staff with panic alarms? I guess we're there, you know. That's the kind of environment they're working in. Uh, More security cameras, maybe bringing in physical security measures like remote locking doors. Only time I've ever seen that before is, you know, at some jewelry stores and things like that where you get buzzed in and you get buzzed out. So I'm not sure. And something as simple as limiting the amount of cash and drugs on site seems to be very effective. But uh, maybe we'll see some changes next time you're heading to the drugstore. Big news south of the border. New York City. Uh, the trial of Glenn Maxwell. That's how the people on BBC say it, so that's how I'm going to say it, because they're the guys that would know. Glenn Maxwell. Uh, she is, I don't know, depending on how you look at it, a business partner, romantic partner, associate, best friend, whatever, of Jeffrey Epstein. Um, she's facing eight charges total, two of them 
to be tried at a later date, perjury charges. Ultimately, she could do 70 or 80 years behind bars if she is convicted. So let's find out what she's on trial for, how it relates to the to the bigger picture, and that's part of the discussion. We're going to chat with Ari Goldkind now. Ari, of course, a criminal defense lawyer and legal commentator, and uh, always great to get on the show. Hi, Ari. Thanks for joining us. Great to be on with you, as always. Now, in the prosecution's opening statement, and this is important, they claim that she was just as responsible as Epstein in all of this child sex trafficking. She was an active participant. She was grooming these girls for Epstein. So they're trying to frame her as being just as culpable as he is, right? That's partly correct. I mean, in terms of certain principles, that's morally horse manure and bunk. But in the way that the law works, if you're a conspirator, it doesn't matter if you're at the top of the food chain or at the bottom. It's sort of like in Canada. You don't have to be the principal to an offense. If there's a bank robbery, just to make it easier, and three guys go into a bank and one, God forbid, shoots the teller or has a gun, even the third person who doesn't have the gun or doesn't shoot anybody is legally culpable to keep it as simple as possible. Gotcha. But the idea, but the idea, and this is where the story gets more interesting to me, and we can talk about what's happened so far and where it's going. The idea that she has the same blood on her hands as Epstein at a 50-50 ratio is horse manure. And if that is presented to the jury, there may be one or two members of the jury who've watched the Netflix series about Epstein, not that you're supposed to, that hear the evidence, and they may quite actively resist the Crown overplaying a hand because the case that they really should present is a relatively simple and straightforward one that doesn't involve getting into these kinds of moral judgments. Okay, we'll get to the case you think they should present in a second, because I want to circle back, because uh, I think the defense agrees with you wholeheartedly, because their position during their opening statement is exactly what you just said. Just because Epstein's dead and you can't, you know, hold him to justice doesn't mean you can pivot and throw the same things at her. It's not the same. That's their opening statement. Yeah, and they went further, and his lawyer uh, used the word scapegoat. And quite frankly, the prosecution went bananas at them using that word, and it's a completely appropriate word. If Epstein was still alive and didn't ostensibly commit suicide in the hellhole called the Manhattan Detention Center, where Ms. Maxwell has been improperly detained, she should have received bail. I appreciate everybody listening to us will go, I don't agree with that. She should be detained forever. Uh, but that, by the way, that position would be wrong. She should have been out on bail for a series of things we may not have time to discuss. You know, at the end of the day, uh, what Epstein has done, and if he was prosecuted and alive, would have very much changed the prosecution's zeal or appetite to go after Miss Maxwell with the zeal that they're doing. And the defense lawyer, as I said, used the word scapegoat. You can use the word proxy. And those things may all come to be important, and I'll give it a Canadian component. There are a lot of eerie similarities, eerie similarities in the Maxwell case to the Gomeshi case, which is a case that continues to be the most well-known kind of case in this area in Canadian history, but also the most misunderstood. Um, What are the similarities? What do you uh, spell that out a bit for us? Yeah, so the way it started with Gomeshi, and and you can see just by watching the trial today and following the evidence of Maxwell, that there's going to be some very interesting turns that are Gomeshi-like. At the beginning of Epstein, or if you watch the Netflix series, you get the idea that these four complainants are as pure as the driven snow, that they come with unblemished resumes, they're just there to tell the truth. Now, remember, for people listening, 
I am a criminal defense right, lawyer. Yeah, fair I enough. do not. Right, no, but a lot of people be like, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> I, I don't care what Twitter says. Okay. I care about evidence. That's my job. So yep. go get mad at somebody else because it won't bother me. And what the prosecution is going to try and suggest is that these four women are untainted by financial considerations, untainted by relationships that may call into question the veracity of their evidence. Here's the comparison to Gomeshi. The entire country believed Gomeshi was guilty, that he was a monster, that he was charged with things he wasn't even charged with, and that he would be found guilty in two seconds. That was the, I mean, remember, this is before George Floyd. That was sort of the trial of the year, okay? Yep. And Judge Horkins, a judge that, quite frankly, is a very tough judge. He's certainly somebody that, uh, uh, you know, doesn't lean one way or the other, but very tough. He called the, ac- the accusers in the Gomeshi case the lying liar of liars. Nobody ever read that decision, right? He tore them apart, their quest for fame, their inability to keep their story straight. Now, what's the link back to Maxwell? There is no doubt that the involvement of the famous lawyers you see on TV, the Gloria Allreds, her daughter Lisa Bloom, the millions of dollars being sought in these settlements. Again, I'm not asking anybody to agree with me. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. Those are all things that the defense lawyer will very, very clearly exploit in the coming days that so many people have come forward because of the fun, because of the notoriety, because of all sorts of things that come. Now, I'm not saying she's not guilty, by the way. If you ask me, just as a Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that, yep. if you ask me at simple terms, did she know and did she participate in the grooming of young women to give him these ridiculous massages? I think it's an unavoidable yes. But where the defense has gone yesterday in their opening statement is twofold. The involvement and the tainting of money and millions of dollars, millions, by the way, to people who come forward. And number two, the issue of the age of consent in the various states where this conspiracy is alleged to have happened, and right now you have the pilot of the Lolita Express on the stand, and his evidence I don't think has helped the prosecution the way they think it might. Um, Ari, can you hang on for a minute? Because i got a couple more for you. Of course. Okay, we'll take a quick break, put Ari on hold and come back, and i got a couple more questions right after this. We're talking with Ari Goldkind, criminal defense lawyer and uh, legal commentator about the uh, Galen Maxwell trial. And Ari, the one question that I, uh, is overriding here and we need to get to, and I'm glad you could mm-hmm. hold on for us. Um, the reason we're talking about this trial is is not because of child sex trafficking. Unfortunately, that happens quite often. We don't often talk about it. We're talking about this because of links to uh, Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, Donald Trump. Bill Gates. I mean, the list goes on and on with some of the highest profile people on the planet. That's why this trial is, you know, the trial that it is. How big of a factor is that in what's happening and why the prosecution took the stance they took? You know, it's a very interesting question that I wasn't expecting, Shay. So first of all, you deserve a lot of credit for saying out loud what most people won't, okay? And let's explore why that's important, okay? Yep. Now, you know when I come on your show, I'm not a bleeding heart, right? I can be as pro-police I can be as pro-prosecution as any defense lawyer in Canada. I get in trouble for it, and I continue to not care, okay? Now, why do I say that? Because you raise something that if you're truly concerned with child sex trafficking, particularly in the States, particularly coming through the southern border, where we know that the reports are horrendous of what many young women have to go through to be coming up with coyotes Mm -hmm. and all sorts of sex trafficking. And, by the way, 
even, you know, uh, Americans who have to go through this. We never know their name. There's never enough resources for them. There's not enough cops to do it, not enough prosecutors to go after, okay? She ticks, Miss Maxwell does, the daughter of a billionaire British magnate. She ticks all the right demographic checkboxes. And the reason I say all that is because you mentioned the links to Clinton, Gates, Trump, uh, Alan Dershowitz, if people know that part of the story. Uh, And again, I know we're living on a time, so I'm not going into why there's so many problems and holes in this story. I mean, the pilot's evidence today was quite interesting about the rich people and celebrities you mentioned. But this is a diversion. This is a sort of gotcha moment because Epstein's dead where we go after her because she, again, is the right demographic checkbox. I mean, I don't want to get too far into it, but, it, you know, if you look at the carnage in Wakesha last week, the, the man who mowed down those people, it's almost out of the news because it doesn't tick the right checkboxes. And that, to me, is a lawyer who sees the effects of trafficking, who sees the effects of young women uh, who, who have no names. They have no voice. They don't have Gloria Allred. Right. And Lisa Bloom, the plaintiff's lawyers, lining up for their sound bites. You, you know, again, I, I wasn't expecting that question, but I have bellyached for a long time that the the good intentions of people, when it gets up with mixed up with millions of dollars and fame, often leads to ignoring the kind of victims that not only do not have a name, but that no prosecutor or police officer will say they have the resources to prosecute. And your question just took me in that direction because I've looked at that for many years. So what does that mean for this trial? I mean, obviously that's the overriding, you know, factor that's going on behind the scenes here. I mean, I think a lot of people are watching the trial, not to see her be convicted of anything. That's not what they're interested in, Ari. They're interested in Bill Clinton or Donald Trump being exposed, or Bill Gates, or you name whoever you want to name. That's what they're watching here. Well, you might be right about that in our TMZ-like nation. Yeah, will that happen, though? No, and so I was going to say spoiler alert, which is, I always like spoiler (laughs) alerts. I don't think that's going to happen. And I think people just look at her, Shay, and maybe we agree or disagree a tiny bit on this. I actually do think people say, oh, she should rot in jail. She should go to jail forever. She should die in jail. If you said to a bunch of people, what's she actually charged with? How far did the prosecution have to reach to charge her? They had to get into conspiracy counts. There's age of consent issues. This is really a prosecution, again, by proxy. Now, again, Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Do I think she didn't know everything he was doing? Yes. In fact, the accusations at their highest is at times she was part of these massages with inappropriate sexual touching. But when you have a defense that says we're going to show you age of consent, we're going to show you this, we're going to show you that, we're going to show you the checks, we're going to show you the money. Yes, there will be people listening to us that say, so what that a young woman, once she came forward, got a check for $4 million? But you may have jurors at that point, particularly when the cross-examination is strong. Remember, cross-examination has not begun yet. Everybody hold your beer for a second. You may have the same issues in Gomeshi. That's why I say there's a very Canadian link here where everybody thought he was a monster. He was taken down. The the, uh, alleged victims were going to come forward and be believed. Everybody got mad, remember, at his lawyer for asking them questions that that, you know, that annoyed people that, God forbid, you ask accusers questions. 
Uh, I think the defense here has a little bit more ammunition than we think, but back to my original point, the charges are at their core is did she know if these women were underage, that's a big if, or the children were underage, whichever term you prefer, underage children, underage women. If If she knew on a number of counts, she is likely exposed. But going back to the point at hand, there is no doubt we would probably not be having this discussion today if Jeffrey Epstein was alive. Last one for you, Ari, and I appreciate yes, you spending sir. so much time with us this morning. Manipulated memory. Uh, the pros- uh, the pros- no, the defense brought that up and won the right yes. to bring in experts on that as part of their defense, basically saying that the memories that these women will present about what happened aren't factual and they've been influenced. Have you run into this before? Uh, not only have I run into it, I think most criminal lawyers and prosecutors will tell you this is a very real phenomenon. It is not overly complex. I, again, we're low on time. You've probably got to get to break. Yeah. But this is something where if somebody thinks something happened, but they're not sure, but they start to, I'm, I'm being very simplistic here, obviously. Yeah. But the more that they keep repeating something, the more that people drum into somebody that they're a victim or that this must have happened or they were in somebody's orbit. And here again, Let me make this clear, much to the chagrin of people listening. When you add in people that haven't come forward, but then when they know if they do, there's a millions and millions of dollar payout, and it's often he said, she said. That affects things. Then you enter in the plaintiff's lawyers, the Gloria Allred, the Lisa Blooms, and others that we see constantly doing this. That does make somebody who goes, maybe I don't remember exactly what happened in 1994, that contained them, but let me give the flip side. There may be people that something very specific happened in 1995 in a Palm Beach mansion, and it's as simple as day. That's why the jury does what they do. And if we don't believe in the jury system, which we saw everybody bellyaching after Rittenhouse, then why not just have trials on Twitter and call it a day? And <laughs> my obvious facetiousness is, God forbid we ever do that, because then we're all going to jail for the rest of our life. Ari, uh, spectacular as always. I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Nice to talk to you. You bet. That is uh, Ari Goldkind, a criminal defense lawyer and a legal commentator. And I think, you know, the reason I wanted to have Ari on is because he's a straight shooter. And he's not going to get into, um, you know, his own personal feelings about things. He's going to say, this is what the law says. This is the way that this works. And, you know, he's very experienced in the courtroom. He knows how trials work, but he he's able to, as he said, you can have a trial on Twitter. And there will be a trial on Twitter for Galen Maxwell. Believe me, it started. I was getting texts from people, how come you're not talking about the Maxwell trial? Last week before it had started, okay? I mean, there is a whole group of social media people that are just frothing at the mouth for this trial, hoping that it's going to bring down Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. Uh, And I wanted Ari to come on and as a legal expert and say, don't hold your breath. Um, But there's a lot, this is going to be a closely watched trial and it's interesting to see how it's going to play out. And we'll check in with Ari again, if something comes up, because I trust him to, to give it to us straight. And I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.